Hello, everyone. I'm Brian Carrington, and you're listening to Call Talk for January 13th, 2016. Holy smokes. Today's topic is workforce optimization. Now, before you go buying any WFO technology, you're going to want to listen to this show. There's two emerging changes in the contact center industry you need to know about, and we're going to talk about them today. So, if you have any questions, of course, bring them to us. You can do it either two different ways, and probably the most common way is through email. You email me at brian at benchmarkportal.com. That's spelled out B-R-I-A-N at benchmarkportal.com. Now, you can also call in if you like and get on the actual show. And dial in to 347-857-3117. Just make sure you press the number one on your phone to let me know that you have a question, and I'll get you right in. That number real quick, 347-857-3117. And, of course, I want to remind everyone that all of our shows are archived and available for you to listen to at any time that's good for you. And they're easy to find on our website. Go to BenchmarkPortal.com, scroll down near the bottom, and you'll see our Call Talk logo. And you can dive right into all the great content we have been collecting over the last three to four years the show's been going on. So, speaking of the show and going on, let's jump right into today's show and let me introduce to you the host of Call Talk, Bruce Belfiore. Thanks. Thank you very much, Brian, and welcome <laughs> back to Call Talk, everyone, and Happy New Year. Uh, this is a really important show because after a decade of relative calm over the last several years, it's become hard to keep up with technology changes in our call center industry and especially in the workforce optimization area. But as we know, it's very important to do so because workforce optimization is an engine for efficiency in our area, and it's one that we all have to keep our eyes on. So that's why we have brought back an expert on this topic, uh, Bill Durr, who is a veteran of this program. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I'm uh, excited to be here. Okay, great. Well, uh, I guess we didn't scare you off the first couple of times we had you on Call Talk, so that's great. Uh, for those who don't know Bill, uh, he's an industry veteran and has held a variety of sales, marketing, and management roles for major contact center vendors and worked as a consultant for centers uh, meeting with challenges meeting their performance objectives. He has more than 30 years in the space, and he has practical experience with most contact center technologies, including workforce management. Uh, Bill is the author of numerous articles, white papers, and books, including uh, books named uh, Building a World-Class Inbound Call Center, Navigating the Customer Contact Center in the 21st Century, Customer Centricity Through Workforce Optimization, and Analytical Workforce Optimization Demystified. And this last one focuses on how workforce management and quality management are changing because of analytics. So, Bill... Uh, is a frequent speaker on industry events and a variety of themes, including call center productivity and quality, plus many other areas as well. So, uh, Bill, we're really happy to have you, and one of the things I'd like to ask you is uh, you've been involved in the contact center industry for so many years. Uh, what's the most striking characteristic of the industry in your view? Well, you know, there's a lot about the contact center industry that's uh, – that's striking, but one of the things that, that has really caught my attention over the years is how little things have actually changed. When you think about all the changes in technology, business models, and even society, 
it's amazing how little change has occurred in contact centers. You know, we're still grappling with basic issues like what's the right service level? How much scheduled adherence should we ask for? What do we do about the insane attrition rates that most centers suffer? These questions have been posed since I got into this industry some 30 years ago. Okay, so, Bill, if you've been in here so long, how come you <clears throat> haven't changed anything? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I, it's, the change isn't up to me, Bruce, but... Um, <laughs> well, you yeah, know, it is, I, I, this I is one of those situations part of, the more... Part of the reason here is that people running contact centers like to think that there's some standard approach to success, some formula for success, and there just isn't. Um, you know, contact center success depends on who and what your customers want, your company culture, and the industry your company is in. There's no, there's no tried and true formula for achieving those things. Right. So there's an awful lot of art that goes along with the science, and I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, now, when we were discussing this program, you said that you felt that there were some important changes, however, that are beginning to emerge. So could you share that with our listeners? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I, I think the first change that I'm that I'm seeing <clears throat> is something that I, I just kind of tangentially talked about, that's contact center success, which I think is increasingly defined as operational efficiency. It's serving your customers for the lowest possible cost. So for so the 30 years I've been in, the, in this industry, contact center buyers have had essentially two paths to improved operational efficiency. They buy software and hardware, and they improve the skills of the employees. So today I want to focus on that first thing, buying software and hardware. Perpetual software licenses, which is generally the way people acquire software technology these days in contact centers, is relatively costly. You put a lot of money up front. And moreover, um, software maintenance costs are rising such that after about four or five years, the buyers have essentially repurchased their software all over again. They spent just as much in maintenance as they did to acquire the licenses in the first place. Okay, so um, just to make sure that our listeners understand that, what you're saying is there's the amount that you put down up front and then because of the maintenance, the annual maintenance costs that you pay, after another four or five years, you've paid that amount out again, so it's like you're doubling the cost to begin with. Right. You know, and you do get something for that, Bruce. If the company comes up with software upgrades and new releases, uh, sometimes you get those uh, for free or a reduced cost. So it's not money down the drain, so to speak, but it, you do end up, paying for it all over again, <clears throat> whether or not you take advantage of those upgrades or, or not. So, but more recently, we've seen a move towards software as a service, <clears throat> frequently delivered in the cloud. So, you know, from a practical standpoint, this acquisition model removes the high upfront costs and instead imposes a monthly fee. This is a particularly attractive way to buy software for those customers whose requirements change significantly through the year. They're real seasonal kind of businesses. For example, workforce management software makes a lot of sense to be able to buy different amounts of seats on a monthly basis. 
So some people have referred to this model as liquor by the drink. It eliminates high upfront perpetual license costs. Um, but, you know, the reality here is that the monthly fees begin to add up. And when you measure over four or five years, you may or may not realize much savings over the perpetual business license. Okay, but if it's liquor by the drink, you're probably drunk enough so you don't care, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, as I said, you know, liquor by the drink works um, for, for organizations that experience a great deal of seasonality. It makes, it makes good sense for them. But they're still, they're, they're still paying quite a bit of money. Well, now, are you taking into account the uh, savings on in-house systems administrators and savings on periodic upgrades, which are, you know, these are typically included uh, in the cloud-based models. And yeah, you just mentioned that you do get something for uh, your money when you, you have maintenance and everything. But certainly one of the things that has been um, shown in some studies, in fact, uh, is that if you have an, a cloud-based system, that uh, the fact that you don't have to have all of those administrators and, uh, you know, specialists, et cetera, means that and you have somebody else worrying about the uptime, uh, you have your vendor worrying about the uptime, that this actually is uh, a, a great area of savings. Well, and I won't deny that. <clears throat> and, again, for smaller organizations that probably – uh, don't want to take on the cost associated with administrators and high-powered IT technical support people. Again, the software as a service delivered to the cloud probably makes sense. But, you know, and I haven't done a rigorous cost analysis, but I'm pretty sure there's no such thing as a free lunch. On the other hand, cloud software providers incur some costs that proprietary license vendors don't, things like, fault-tolerant servers and heavy-duty security systems, those things cost a lot of money, and you can be sure that um, software-as-a-service vendors recover those costs as well as the costs uh, for the software that they offer. But well, I want to point out something here. It, it almost doesn't matter what acquisition model a buyer chooses. Um there's a point that's, that, that they're missing. And this is my personal opinion, but I'm starting to hear this from more and more users. At the end of the day, contact centers don't actually want to own software and hardware. The only reason that they do that is that they want to realize reduction in costs and improvements in customer loyalty and revenues. What buyers really want are outcomes and results. And I think this is the reason that managed services offerings are increasing and drawing more interest because that's exactly what the end user is buying, results. Right, right. So interesting uh, point. And so do you see the traditional contact center vendors changing their business models to deliver managed services? Well, by and large, they can't afford to do that in terms of market capitalization and shareholder value. All the big contact center vendors are public companies. They have to report their revenue and profit on a quarterly basis. They literally cannot afford to change their business models in such a dramatic fashion. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a case in point, and that's Adobe Industries. They were a proprietary software license company 
who announced a software-as-a-service business model three or so years ago. Their stock took a beating, and so did their shareholder investors. But they've crossed the chasm, and now their stock is on an upward trajectory. So they have they survived the transition from proprietary to software-as-a-service. Not very many companies are capable of making that transition successfully. So anyway, um, this kind of all leads to a second change I'm seeing in the industry, and I, I call it the rise of uh, boutique workforce optimization vendors. Yeah, you know, tell us that. As consumers, we kind of know that all stores aren't the same. And I, I don't want to pick on JCPenney, but, you know, when we go to shop there, um, we know exactly what we're going to get for what we pay. We don't really expect to see anything special, and we don't expect to be treated in any special way. But a boutique shop can specialize and can provide exceptional service because it chooses not to be a mass market retailer. So I think that's what a boutique workforce optimization vendor is all about. They're not so much focused on market share. They're focused on making the customers that they have successful at leveraging the technologies those customers have acquired. Okay. Uh, that's that's interesting. Um, and, okay, now we're actually digging into the workforce optimization theme, which is the title of our session. And uh, I think this will be very interesting to people. Uh, in other words, what you're saying is that rather than looking for the big name or the traditional industry partner, uh, that they may want to look for these boutique providers who are going to be more focused on them, their uh, idiosyncrasies, their way of doing things, and their results rather than uh, one of the, the, the larger providers potentially. Um, well, well, let me ask you this. How can a user recognize a boutique workforce optimization vendor? Yeah, so I think that's probably the $64,000 question. <clears throat> uh, and, I, and I've thought about this long and hard, and I think, I think I've got one sure way to identify a, a real boutique WFO vendor, and that's to ask the vendor in front of you, how many salespeople are in the company and how many implementation consultants are, are in the company? And I think if they answer honestly, you'll find that, a market share vendor typically has a ratio of sales to consultants that can be as high as 20 to 1. 20 salespeople for every real bona fide implementation consultant in the company. Because market share vendors are focused on sales, and their investment in people is going to mirror that. Now, a true boutique WFO vendor is more likely to have a sales-to-consultant ratio of one-to-one or two-to-one. Yeah, a consultant for every one or two sales uh, uh, persons. And that's because that kind of vendor is focused on your success. It, It really comes down to their willingness and ability to deliver results and help ensure a successful outcome. Because if you have that kind of a ratio, uh, it means you're working very closely with the client, uh, the client that presumably 
A, doesn't want to have the technology, as you said earlier in the program, uh, but B, also is uh, both willing and wanting to have some handheld holding through the implementation and uh, perhaps insights that come from uh, a vendor who deals with the technology every day in terms of figuring out how to optimize use of that technology in their particular environment. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much the idea. It kind of also implicitly means that, that a boutique WFO vendor is not likely to have hundreds and hundreds of customers. Right. They're much more right. likely to have um, a handful of customers, new customers every year, um, because they're focused on them. Interesting. Well, now, wouldn't a consultant for every salesperson or two um, result in higher cost to the end user? Uh, like you said earlier, Bill, there, there's no such thing as a free lunch. <laughs> right. And, and, and probably, yeah, there might be some higher costs to the end user. And I, and I think I'll just go ahead and say, so what? Uh, you know, <laughs> This is kind of like the business case for flexible scheduling where you offer some agents a little bit more money to adopt flexible schedules. You may pay them more, you know, but the bottom line is you save a great deal more. So, you know, while an end user may end up paying more for the software solution from a boutique WFO vendor, if they can realize greater benefits and return, what have they really spent? So, you know, and I guess as a final anecdotal comment, I, I remember a bunch of years ago when when we were shooting astronauts up in the space on a regular basis, one of them saying something about being a bit nervous sitting on top of a rocket that was built by the lowest cost bidder. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. it's just worth spending a little more to realize the quality outcome. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and there's that great um, scene in uh, Apollo 13 where there's the uh, – literally the round hole and the square peg, and they're trying to put the two together and in order to bring the guys back from space, which fortunately they do in the end. But uh, I, I hear you. I hear you. Well, let me ask you this then, Bill. How are the traditional contact center vendors reacting to this new breed of vendor? Do they feel threatened? And if so, what, do they, what are they doing about it? Well, I'm not sure that they feel threatened. I think some of them don't even recognize um, that, there's this, that there's this trend beginning. But, you know, one thing that I've noticed um, from from the big-name vendors, they're all kind of upping the, the hype. Um, if, you, if you listen to their messages like I do out of curiosity and interest, um, they're pretty much telling the marketplace that whatever technology you have today just isn't enough. What you need is more technology, more solutions, more stuff. Um, so I saw an article recently um, uh, that bore this out. You know, it used to be when I wrote my first book about WFO technology that workforce optimization was defined as workforce management, that's forecasting and scheduling, performance management, and quality monitoring. You know, just that. Not anymore. You know, today the big vendors define workforce optimization as all those things plus speech and text analytics, surveys, gamification, new hire screening, top agent profiling, desktop analytics, and big data analysis. It's 
it's quite a breathtaking list, and I'm sure it will deflate almost any company's wallet considerably. Well, that, that's right. I mean, I think this is what we've seen. After a certain period of calm that over the last uh, few several years, uh, those things you just mentioned have come into uh, play, and they want to be integrated, and vendors want to see them integrated all together. And it is, uh, it is overwhelming for a lot of call center managers to uh, understand, much less deal with. Well, I totally agree. I, you know, I think, I think there's probably 200, 300,000 contact centers in the world. Yep. I, I could be off, you know, by, by a lot. But that, I think that's a pretty reasonable guess. I think it's a reasonable thing to suggest that there's probably only 200 or 300 contact centers in the world that have all the technologies that the top-line WFO vendors are are saying that you need in order to survive these days. But I think we're all aware of the fact that there's just thousands and thousands of contact centers today that deliver good, an acceptable service to their customers every day without all those technologies. They're either really lucky or maybe they're savvy to the fact that good customer service isn't nearly as complicated as big vendors would have you believe. <laughs> okay. Now, these are really great insights. And Bill, let me just ask you one other thing. Do you see that some of the boutique vendors are using the big vendor technology for what they do, or are they using their own technology? Well, that's a good question, Bruce. Um, as a matter of fact, I think the boutique WFO vendors are very often using the top-line vendors' technologies. They're partners of them, but they just have a different approach to the marketplace and a different business model. They they can't they can't afford to recreate these technologies. The, those technologies cost millions and millions of dollars. So you know, make make no mistake about that. Okay. Well, you know, we're going to be going into questions now because we're getting toward the end of the hour. But would you mind just sort of recapping for our our listeners the two big changes that that, that you see? Well, I, I think they boil down to this. <clears throat> Instead of proprietary. Uh, software licenses, or even software as a service, buyers are coming to the conclusion that what they really want are outcomes, successful outcomes. And, and so the second thing is they can acquire these successful outcomes by either uh, engaging in a managed services offering from uh, some organization or potentially by doing business with a boutique WFO vendor. That's essentially the message I have today. Okay. No, that's great. Uh, thank you very much for those insights. And uh, what I'd like to do now is uh, turn things over to Brian, who has some questions. Brian? Yeah, I do. Got a couple here. Uh, came in via email. The first one is from Nancy. And <laughs> Nancy asked you, Bill, I'm curious why you think the contact center industry hasn't changed very much. Yeah, well, Nancy, you know, I'm not sure I really know, but I, one thing that I've seen over and over is uh, very few contact centers experiment. They, well, take, for example, the question, what should my service level be? Instead of, you know, searching 
on the internet for the mythical industry standard service level, I don't understand why more contact centers don't just arbitrarily change their service level goal for a week or a month and see what happens. Yeah, but nobody, uh, does, nobody does that. <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, I would peel the onion uh, a little bit further, and maybe that's because we're, we're benchmarkers here. But I'd say uh, there is no industry standard. In fact, what we see is that uh, if your definition of industry is the call center industry, um, because that's what most people think of as the industry standard is the old uh, 80-20 rule, right, uh, 80% of the calls in 20 seconds. But um, if you look at your industry, Okay, your specific industry, what we've seen is that there are actually different expectations of uh, people for different industries, and therefore they will be excited or disappointed by different service levels in different industries. So your expectations for your uh, healthcare provider uh, will be different from your expectations from your leisure services provider, et cetera. And uh, so those expectations are an important starting point for you to have, and then you can do your own internal studies, and should do, as you said, Bill, your own internal studies, uh, as long as you've got a good customer satisfaction measurement system uh, that allows you to, in fact, uh, track this and understand it. And doing a little bit of uh, either pilot testing or overall testing uh, can give you a lot of insights and, in many cases, save you money because you'll find out you don't need to have as uh, tight standards for service level or for average speed of answer as you thought you did. Um, You're exactly right, Bruce. And, and uh, I have a personal example. Years ago, <clears throat> I did some consulting for an automobile insurance uh, company. And um, they had looked into the so-called industry standards for in the insurance industry for service levels. But when I talked to them, I discovered that they were rather specialized. They took on people who had already been kicked out of other automobile insurance companies because of their poor driving habits. So they were literally, they were literally an insurance company of last resort. And so right. I said to them, you don't need to have the same service level goals because there's no place else for them to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I have a story like that too. That's even more extreme. I uh, worked with a uh, call center company uh, that um, actually provided the uh, telephone services for prisons. So if you were a prisoner, this is the, you know, your family had to go through them in order to uh, charge your account and to be able so that you could do it. And basically there was nowhere else to go. So. <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, good, 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 good examples. And uh, back to you, Brian, for the next question. Yep. Okay, sounds good. Uh, so this next one comes from Jason, and it, uh, probably uh, responding to some of the things that you said uh, through about the half, the second half of the show here already. And he says, asking, are you suggesting that all the new technologies aren't needed? Well, I guess in a manner of speaking, I am. So you know, let's let's take uh, speech analytics for an example. Um, and I've been and I've been a promoter of speech analytics myself, so I probably am going to speak out of both sides of my mouth here. But um, it was supposed to be able to answer questions you didn't even know that you needed to ask. <clears throat> and and the reality is, um, you know, a number of larger companies bought and implemented the technology, and and they did realize 
some very interesting things that they didn't know they needed to ask. But, you know, that said, the overall business case for speech analytics remains just a bit too ambiguous for a lot of contact centers. And and I think that's why the uptake of speech analytics has been a little bit disappointing. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, well, Bill Durr, the speech analytics curmudgeon, I guess. (laughs) 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 Yeah, and I would agree that there's a lot of people who, it is uh, taking a long time for uptake. There are uh, surprisingly few in number that are really embracing it and uh, trying to squeeze it for all it's worth. Um, What we have seen, just to add something here, is something we're working on, which has to do with sales speech analytics. And uh, what uh, we're calling symmetric sell- uh, semantic, sorry, semantic selling. In uh, and, uh, and a pilot, we're getting very, very good results from it. And we're trying to make it simple uh, as well. So I think that, you know, one of the things with speech analytics is that uh, you have to have a good idea of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And a lot of people don't have that clear idea. So um, I- I'd agree with you on, on a lot of that, Bill, but I'm – I'm sort of willing to see where the world evolves and, and how um, uh, people evolve with it. So we'll see where that goes. Well, well, Bruce, I, I think maybe uh, you hit the nail on the head when you said you're trying to make it simple because if you can make it simple so that ordinary people without a lot of training and analytical skills um, can employ the technology, then I, then I think, it, it will have real value in organizations. So that's the key. Yep. yep. Gotcha. I've got one more. Uh, I know we're just about to the end of the show, and uh, Ryan emailed me this right after you did your kind of wrap-up, Bill, and talked about the two distinct uh, changes that you're seeing in the in the context center industry with WFO. And, and the question is from Ryan, can you expand on your opinion that end users don't want to buy software anymore, that they want to buy results? Uh, well, I'll, I'll try. Um, I think it, it comes down to this. Contact center management has been buying software solutions ever since I've been involved for 30 years. But by a lot of articles, reports, and studies, things haven't gotten noticeably better. Customers um, perhaps are demanding more, but you know, at the end of the day, things just haven't gotten better. So I, I think the problem lies... Uh, not in the software itself, but in the end user's ability to utilize it fully. And it kind of gets back to what Bruce and I just bantered about with with speech analytics. Sometimes the technologies are simply more complicated than the vendors are willing to admit. Um, You know, I live in workforce management for a long time, and you just can't become proficient at that with one week of vendor training. So it may make much better sense to hire a vendor to do it all, you know, and that's called managed services, or to get involved again with a boutique WFO vendor who can spend the time training your people so they can get full value out of that software. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's, uh, that's a great uh, piece of advice there. And if you do decide that you're going to try to do it yourself, um, then do get the Uh, adequate level of vendor training because so many folks don't. And uh, my tip is uh, called double and drip. (laughs) 
Uh, in other words, if they suggest, for example, one week of training, uh, then put in your contract you want two weeks of training at least, and then for the part that you've added on, space it out or drip it out over a period of a few months so that you can go back to them and uh, make sure that they uh, train you adequately and that you get to ask all the questions that you want. Because we oftentimes see that people don't do that. They uh, sort of don't know what they don't know, and they don't ask. And if it's actually written into your contract that you're not only going to have the initial training, but they have to talk to you on a periodic basis thereafter, then, then that's a, a great way of making sure you're squeezing the lemon for, for all the lemonade you can. Uh, I don't know. Do you have uh, a sense of that as well, Bill? Well, that's that's a terrific idea, Bruce. <clears throat> I'd I'd never heard of the of the concept uh, double and drift, but um, I, I think that should be on everybody's lips. Okay, <laughs> good. Thank you. All right. Well, great. This has been a wonderful uh, episode. In fact, we've gone over time, but I think it's been well worth it. And uh, Bill, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us again. It's always a pleasure. Um, uh, thank you for having me, on, and I look forward to the next time. Let's not make it uh, so many years. Okay, very good. Brian, back over to you to wrap things up. All right, well, thanks, you guys. Appreciate all the insight and great conversation through the show today. And I do want to remind everyone to join us next month. We've got another great show coming up. Uh, look at our huge selection of our archive shows in between. And we have all sorts of different topics from over five seasons that we've been putting together Call Talk. And that's at our website, BenchmarkPortal.com. So with that being said, from all of us here at Benchmark Portal, keep those headsets steady and your fingers ready. This is Brian Carrington signing out. Have a great day. That's a wrap. Good luck with your WFO in the contact center. Take care.